folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Pearls Almanac, and you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts, as well as occasionally passing out leftist propaganda at the Amazon warehouse. And of course, you can find us on Patreon if you're enjoying what we're doing here and you'd like to help us cover the costs of hosting the podcast. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our patrons in terms of limited access or anything like that for now. Knowledge, Knowledge is for everyone. Oh, you stole it from yeah, me. Yeah, that's right, I did. But we have started up a Patreon-only miniseries called The Poor... I can't even say it now in this. Called The Prologues. He does that every time. During which we do some critiques on various subject matters and talk about those things not only from an intersectional lens, but also within the context of this podcast. Societal Collapse and Reconstruction. Here's a quick clip of what we're doing over in the Patreon-only section. Listen up. Uh, much like how we structure the beginning of the podcast with this idea of if you understand these very basic principles, then all the other pieces make sense. They just don't seem like when you were in high school and you had to memorize random dates and it didn't make a lot of sense. You were just memorizing for the sake of memorizing because you felt like you needed to know it. The goal is that you'll be able to say, okay, I see how these things go together and each new piece of information further reinforces my understanding of the whole subject. Right. And if you guys have been paying attention, I've said a billion times each episode springs boards off the, off the previous. So yeah, keep up. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, so that's kind of been the main trajectory of the show uh, or the podcast. And right now we are, we already have lined up content through, I would say about October if you're interested and you are willing to donate $2, it's up on our Patreon. We've also released one episode that was asked by popular demand for public consumption, so there's a good place to start to check it out and see if you'd like to hear more. On top of this content, we've got stickers available, and we're including some footage from my farm putting the theory we're talking about into practice. So if you want to see what's going on over there, check out the Patreon. While we do enjoy making this content, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode, so any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. So, go check us out on Patreon. If you don't use Patreon, we also have a Venmo as well. We're also on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. Supposedly, Elliot's going to start a Twitch one of these days, but I already have enough Twitches, so I'm not going to start one. Yeah, I'll start a Twitch if that's something that I think you would like, we would like. I, I don't I, know. I don't know what Twitch is, other than like It's the same the thing verb. we're doing right now, but there's a camera involved. And also, we do it live so that we could like talk to people and chat with people, and people would probably tell us we're stupid and shut up. Yeah, well, what else is new? Well, that's why I'm debating it. We'll <laughs> see. So, yeah. If this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode of this podcast and catching up, since each episode springboards from the previous content, or at least the beginning of this miniseries, which frames up this conversation around indigenous farming. Our goal with this miniseries is to challenge one of the largest questions I think people struggle with when it comes to whatever you want to call the farming style that doesn't rely on massive petrochemical energy, and that's the question of how do we detangle colonization from agriculture when permaculture and regenerative farming have such a problematic past and, in many ways, present? We recently did a dive into permaculture in a recent episode, chronicling its history, what permaculturalists believe, and a bit about the problems associated with the practice and the movement. With that framed up, this series is all about ancient farming practices, many of which are somewhat related and these common threads, I think, are going to all tie in together in the long run. Today, we're talking about some indigenous farming practices in Japan. All right, so we're in Japan. Traditional pre-industrial farming in Japan was adapted to the natural environment. That includes topography, geology, hydrology, climate, and biome. Um, last episode, we had talked about the traditional land uses and systems in place in Norway, which would be defined as an infield-outfield landscape. And in Japan, a similar concept was utilized known as Satayama landscape. There are obvious similarities and differences in land use, and the main difference being that pasturing cattle and sheep has been less important in Japan. These land use systems can be traced back to early sedentary settlements 1500 to 2500 years ago in Japan, and at least 10,000 years ago in Norway. 
For sedentary farms or farm villages in Norway, settlements were placed beside cultivated lowland areas near the borders between infields and outfields. Forest products were also obtained from the outlands, which also were used for pasture. When land use of this kind was established in forested regions, it resulted in a change towards a mosaic landscape with higher biological diversity. So originally the term Satayama from Sato meaning village and Yama meaning upland was used for forested often hilly areas situated beside farm villages. This has been traced back to the 18th century. In addition, Satoumi or meaning again Sato village and Umi meaning sea is a coastal area where people are dependent on sea fishing. Before the introduction of commercial fertilizers in the mid-20th century, gathering of litter in the Satayama woodlands was important. Often grasslands in the uplands were laid out and harvested for compost litter and grass thatching. And it has been calculated that a village with 100 acres of rice paddy fields needed over 1,000 acres of Satayama woodlands for litter gathering. Trees were coppiced in order to get more tree trunks for timber, fuel, and charcoal production. So this meant that a rotation of time of about 15, 20 years on the coppice cycle. So, so when they would cut and let them regrow and cut yeah, and let so them regrow. If, yeah. So if you didn't listen to the last episode or you're not familiar with the term coppice or you just forgot, coppicing is cutting a tree down at its stump and allowing new growth to take over and using those same root balls. Certain species are very good at it and other ones not so much. They, they utilized primarily coppicing trees, but as we'll find out, that wasn't the only thing, and uh, there was a little bit of a learning curve in terms of creating these sustainable forest systems. So the coppicing occurred even in distant mountainous areas, and even today large areas of coppice woodlands are to be seen, but in general these are overgrown woodlands as large-scale coppicing ceased in about the mid-20th century. Again, something uh, similar to Norway. Mm-hmm. That was about the same time a lot of the traditional farming practices mostly went away was in the early to mid 20th century as a petrochemical fertilizer industry kind of took over. Cheap and convenient took over from our time-tested. Yeah, and mass urbanization. Right. Interesting. So food products were gathered such as shoots of bamboo, ferns and herbs, chestnut, berries, mushrooms, game, and so on. Today, gathering of chestnuts is still practiced in mountain areas, and animal husbandry has been quite different from Europe. The staple food common for people was vegetables and seafood. Cattle, or oxen, were mainly used as draft animals, and even horses to some extent. When Buddhism became a national religion in the 7th century, the cattle meat was regarded as unchaste, and people definitely stopped eating it then. And in the year 676, the emperor prohibited consumption of meat from cattle and horses, which lasted until 1871. However, archaeological investigations in Kyoto and other places have shown that carcasses of cattle and horses were butchered for several purposes, including meat consumption. Silkworms were produced in areas where mulberry trees native to Japan were growing, and silk production was carried out from around 2,000 years ago into the modern era. In contrast to the land used in Norwegian outlands, the Satayama woodlands were used for cultivation of plants that didn't require watering, at least close to the farms. Satayama woodlands were half-open hill slopes near settlements, or more closed woodlands at higher elevation and more distant places. Pasturing of cattle and sheep did not occur in, in these uplands, as it was often simply too far away from most of the population centers, and unlike the Norwegians, it was unheard of to have multiple homes in order to extend the grazing season. Yeah, so these, out, we'll call them outlands, but they're really not. The, the landscape was designed almost like primarily coppiced with meadows and things like that, grasslands below, but it it also incorporated some of those things that were like perennial bushes and things like that that didn't need really any maintenance so they they retained a good portion of their um, I guess you could call feral food systems in the sense that they were utilizing fruits that were coming from berries and bushes and things like that that were being managed in some ways kind of like what uh, the indigenous people North America did where they were primarily planting and planting and spreading seeds of the things that were edible in order to make their landscape more edible. They they didn't completely abandon that in Japan. 
It's interesting because from just what we did in the research and just taking a look at the few pictures that you showed me before we started recording, it seems like this is a lot based on elevated regions. I guess we'll talk about it later or we'll try to cover it later in the episode. But how were they judging which plants needed water versus which ones didn't? And where did they put those in terms of top or bottom? Like how was how is it prioritized what needed water? Was it the rice paddies first and then everything else was based on that or Yeah, so I I we didn't really go into that, but my my guess is that they targeted the species that were in the wilds and the ones that they had traditionally eaten before they moved into agriculture and just planted them in places that were convenient. The climate in most of Japan um, is more rainy, so there's really not a need. And actually what they generally were doing was finding ways to manage that rain so it didn't destroy the landscape. And um, so I, I don't think they were thinking from that perspective of, uh, we need to make sure that they get enough water. That was never really a problem. And that's why they could farm the way they do in terms of the rice paddies, which we'll talk about now. Okay. So, yeah, it wasn't scarcity. It was, um, it was manage- management. Yeah, it was much more management, keeping the topsoil on the land, mitigating the damages of the climate. Like I said, they kind of focused on this idea of farming that's combined with the gathering of these wild plants. They, they utilized primarily chestnuts, and again, they started grazing up to 7,000 years ago, and uh, this was probably related to that transitional period of mobile set- settlements in this hilly landscape. Wet rice cultivation was introduced from the Korean Peninsula about 3,000 years ago, and that became a huge component of their food system. The Sadayama woodland gaps that we talked about are not well recorded by pollen record from the ground flora, which means that clearings followed by successions have to be traced in the changes in tree composition. In a regional Japanese context, many pollen diagrams demonstrate a rise of pine pollen in the late Holocene, often dated with the time span from about 1000 BC to 1000 AD, and is usually interpreted as being caused by clearings, timber cutting, fires, those types of things. Although many pollen diagrams are old and not dated with super high precision, there seems to be a time transgression from deforestation and expansion of wet rice cultivation from about 1000 BC to 500 AD. It was during this 1500 years that they kind of figured out how to grow rice in their environment and what ways they could do that without taxing the environment too much. Forced exploitation with partial deforestation has been documented from as early as 600 AD and again happened in the 16th century from about 1570 to 1670. And again, during that period that we had just talked about, as the rise of petrochemical industrial fertilizers Mm -hmm. came up in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. So some of the causes that they've identified were around coal production, the cutting of firewood, and exploiting the timber that existed for buildings. Primarily, the exploiting of timber for buildings was for the modern era, as massive urbanization took place in the 20th century. This deforestation affected forest uplands belonging to different kinds of owners, the state, private landowners, and so on, as well as woodlands situated to nearby farm villages. These experiences ended up leading to an awareness of the forest protection as early as the 9th century, as they'd seen the consequences of overutilization. Overexploitation. Yeah, overexploitation. They were exploiting it, but... Yeah, past the carrying capacity of the landscape. So over this time, a general system of agriculture has come to be known in the region, utilizing its mountainous, water-saturated landscape, and its utilization has morphed to meet the changes of the climate and through experiments of successes and failures to create sustainable agricultural systems. Throughout this process, practices like clear-cutting and coppicing have provided the periodic disturbance of the ecosystem that has maintained the diversity of the landscape. The flora and fauna that have inhabited this environment of cold, temperate grasslands and deciduous woodlands, including relic species that have survived since the last ice age, face extinction if the deciduous woods give way to evergreen species, which has taken place in the last 20th century. The current wildlife inhabitants have survived in this environment precisely because these grasslands and deciduous woodlands have been maintained by periodic human disturbance. Moreover, this land use mosaic has provided a diversity of wildlife habitats by permitting the establishment of vegetation in varying stages of succession. 
So what this generally looks like is on the tops of the mountains was where the woodlands was primarily left untouched from human state. It's the most natural state. Yeah, it's, I don't want to use the word natural because that implies that humans aren't natural, but unmanaged I guess state. untouched. I guess untouched, yeah. yeah untouched right? by humans, let's say. Below this is where you have those coppicing fields uh, and slightly managed woodlands where they've been cleared a little bit, but not completely light is able to penetrate into the grounds and allow the grass to grow and things like that. These bushes, the perennial fruits and things like that are able to take hold. And then as you get further and further down, you start getting into the more intensely managed landscape, which we're going to cover in a little bit. So close, it, closer to home. Yeah, closer to home. And then the towns that existed, existed along usually the rivers that existed because so much water is flowing down the landscape. And the reason the landscape is structured the way it is, and we're going to cover that in a few minutes, is around the fact that there's so much water that goes into the landscape. And you can't simply just clear land and plant crops. You can't even just rely on a basic cover crop. So were there specializations among villages where certain elevations were good for certain things? Or was there a lot of redundancy in what was being done? So I think there was a bit of specialization. There was some overlap because the town's you know you think about a mountain a mountain doesn't just go straight down right it usually goes down and then it goes Peaks back up valleys. a little bit and then it goes back down again and those villages that existed these small little hamlets um they all exist in those spaces and sometimes you're on the border between two spaces mm -hmm. and again you might be at the bottom of a peak but also going up another small mountain uh or hill or whatever you want to call it, a secondary hill there there's a lot of utilization of the landscape and really working with the things that you can't control so if you had listened to the episode we did on the scale of permanence, P.A. Yamans talks about this idea of what are the most permanent things, and those are the things that you have to be the most thoughtful about changing. He points to climate as the first being the one thing you can't change, which clearly we've challenged that assumption. Yeah, so, so you're saying this smart guy was like super wrong. Yeah, he, he missed <laughs> it on that one. But, so, uh, he, so he's like me. He gets stuff wrong. Yeah. He's, awesome. He's infallible. I'm like P.A. Infallible, now. just like us. So I think that plays into like this understanding of knowing your place in the landscape and then working with the dynamic environment that's around you. So these, like you just asked, uh, these woodlands were traditionally managed by the local communities. The Sadayama woodlands specifically uh, were utilized for timber, cutting down the, the coppice stands and utilizing it for firewood. Additionally, a lot of the leaf litter and ground litter, all of that stuff was used to um, manure the wetland rice fields at the bottom of the hills and make sure that there was always new biomass being added to those paddies. They also uh, extensively used the non-timber forest products like uh, bamboo shoots and the rotting logs that carried mushrooms and things like that to maximize what they could get out of the landscape. So they really had this diverse utilization of their unique landscape, things like bamboo that are not native to some place like Norway uh, was a huge component of their food system. And they, they worked to include that in a way that was meaningful, just like the rice patties and things like that. So although these villages were usually fairly different in size, generally speaking, each cluster of families would um, maintain several acres of those early successional forests per acre of rice paddies cultivated and a family of seven or eight people typically needed about four or so acres of woodlands to um, provide all the litter that they needed for the rice paddies. Obviously, this is much less than the Norwegians required because of the fact that they live in an easier environment to manage and they also have these rice paddies that they're, uh, is their primary food source. So they don't need to rely primarily on taking leaves and grass and things like that out of the woodlands to feed their animals. And it sounds like they needed less um, space because they needed less food to feed to their animals because they aren't harvesting them as much. Yeah, because they, meat wasn't their primary food. Like you had mentioned that this, there was a lot of fish being eaten, mm -hmm. but outside of those uh, ocean coastal towns, that wasn't actually very common inland. It's mm -hmm. more of a... a very much a coastal, a localized thing mm -hmm. where they have that unique access to fresh fish and right. protein. Unlike the Norwegians, again, which they all had this giant footprint, farmers that ha had three houses, their summer, winter, and spring house, mm -hmm. would also have, like, a, they would go out fishing three weeks a year or whatever it might have been. I'm not sure what the number was. But they, they utilized literally everything in their environment. But Norway also has a much shorter 
growing season. So mm-hmm. they have to work with what they've got. Right. So we'd hinted at this point that the the the, the island had uh, ebbed in and out of sustainable farming practices as they learned to integrate a lot of this into their lifestyle from living a nomadic life. Uh, I'm sure that existed with the Norwegians and all these other groups as well. We just don't have as much documentation on it because we have these uh, records that we can see where there was this mass deforestation and then things grew that weren't really helpful for people. So they knew that that meant something wasn't going well. So we can kind of follow that practice of successful agriculture through recognizing what species were growing when. So one of the reasons why Japan is a challenge is they also have extreme climate, just not in the way that Norway traditionally does. So while Norway might be extremely cold and things like that with short growing seasons uh, and poor topsoil, Japan has the unique challenge of being rife with extreme events, which require very unique tools and knowledge in order to create sustainable human integrated habitats. So in short, there was really an extensive history of trial and error as a means of creating these sustainable systems on small mountain landscapes in a monsoon climate with the added challenges of earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, torrential rains, and typhoons. In the first episode of the podcast, we had talked about how consistency in weather was crucial for diversity and complex systems, which allow species to both specialize in their niche and be able to grow for long periods of time. So instead of focusing on their environment and creating that specialization in places with extreme weather conditions, those animals learn to live or those animals and plants learn to live in the worst and the, I guess, just the worst parts of the climate. So it's not just about creating the the fastest growing plant or about the one that uses energy sources, food source that no one else can. You have to be able to do that and survive 120 degrees or negative 20 degrees or whatever that extreme temperature is. Or earthquakes or torrential rains. Yeah, which becomes essentially a selection pressure, which reduces the diversity of the landscape. Mm -hmm. It's the same reason why deserts or the Arctic are less complex and have less diversity than the rainforest, where it's stable, the same temperature and same humidity, same rainfall, pretty much year round. Gotcha. So I think that's important to keep in mind is how challenging the environment is because of that. So for Japan's natural environment to thrive and become so diverse, the species must be tolerant of that disturbance, human or otherwise, which allows for humans to utilize their ability to create patchwork ecosystems that help their environment. The alternative to this, and this is kind of what they did, is for humans to try to minimize the amount of disturbance in order to allow those species to thrive and evolve in more considerate environments. So basically, instead of digging and planting monocultures, you're saying they used the elevation and key lines in the landscape and worked with what they had? Yeah, and uh, it's funny. Like I feel like I'm always talking to people about how like, MBAs are anarchist theory, but for profit. MBAs are just about like learning how to align the interests of your employees with the company. Mm-hmm. And like, that's what anarchists do is we're going to align the interests of the community with individuals. And in this case, you're doing that with the environment too. So you're adding this trifecta of aligning the interests of people, the community as a whole, and the interests of the ecology of the community. Yeah, that's why we started this shit. Are you saying I have an MBA? Because I'm going to put that on my resume now. Do it. I'll, I'll say you have one, if anyone asks. Sweet. So for at least the past few thousand years, the indigenous people have been living by creating crop fields, by burning woodlands, expanding paddy fields by managing water, utilizing the woods and grass for fertilizer, fuel, or construction materials, and fishing in the rivers and lakes. Evidence suggests that historically, fish was a smaller component than game, as a primary protein, which suggests the landscape once held much higher amounts of game than once thought, and the people who lived right upon the coast were the primary folks who relied heavily on the sea for its food. So if anyone is familiar with the wild boar that live here in the United States, boar live wild in Japan, and they can pretty much live through anything. I dare say that they are the perfect animal. For islands, definitely. For anywhere. Yeah. Like, nothing kills them except for guns. So um, that is probably uh, a big component of their uh, historical meat that they ate from game. They also have a a big population of deer, Mm -hmm. which is another big component of their diet. 
The biggest impact on the landscape stemmed from the heavy rains that quickly overflow the mountain streams as they head to the sea. Unsurprisingly, flooding and damage are inevitable without careful planning and management. Therefore, water management was the most significant factor in creating sustainable landscapes and developing settlements. Water was managed first by using the forests on the top of the mountains, which slowed the water from there to the open canopied forests where there was grasslands and the trees that were being coppiced that could absorb with both the deep roots of the trees and the medium roots of the grasses to help slow down that rain from running down the landscape, which then went down to the traditional terraced paddies that people think of when you think of Japanese agriculture. These were designed around essentially a swale system, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, and from there to the villages and the vegetable gardens, which existed right around the, the small village centers, and ultimately back into the streams where it became a slow trickle, essentially, and they weren't losing any of the nutrients on the landscape. There was no topsoil loss. While a degree of maintenance was required to maintain these terraces through the uses of dikes and retainer walls and retainer ponds, which were later used as larger rice paddies, these systems not only helped create sustainable living conditions for the small towns, but also helped reduce the ability of nature to create those extreme conditions, allowing for an extensive array of diversity, much of which you can only find in Japan. Interesting, because when I think about um, using rivers and streams, you think about, well, I think about nutrients collecting along that river and then being dumped into a fertile region or a delta, whatever you want to call it. And that seems to be where the, most of the fertile land is. But it seems like they've made fertile land around the landscape and had yeah. the water kind of flow through the patches where they needed it the most. Yeah, they've slowed the rain so it's not pushing all that into the delta. Right. That way they can utilize the whole landscape instead of just the delta. That's such a long-term, like a permanent thing, though, like you were saying earlier, yeah. where you have to make the changes. You have to make the most consideration in the changes that are going to be permanent. Yeah. They saw that that was going to be the best way to do it, and it, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better way. So that seems like that's what they went ahead and did, and it seems like it lasted for a pretty long time. That's, again, I think part of why they had so many failures is that this was such a complicated landscape that they created that there's no way to do it perfectly and it took them thousands of years to really perfect it and the thing is even with that landscape it's important to remember that if you make a mistake up front it might not be evident for a long time mm -hmm. and um or they might have and again I, I couldn't find much information on exactly the details i'm sure somebody smarter than me knows they had hit that carrying capacity of the landscape with the way they were living mm -hmm. which caused the collapse or if it was other outside influences or if it was the landscape itself. Or a combination of yeah, or a many combination. factors like life is. Yeah. <laughs> this is an extremely simplified vision of what these landscapes looked like. And often these landscapes were managed by many communities collectively maintaining the health of their ecosystems. The term that's really more appropriate as we have this conversation is the term Satayama landscape which incorporates all of these different functions within the entire landscape, while Satayama is focused primarily on the upland woodlands. But I would say that the upland coppiced woodlands is kind of that key functional aspect that allows all the other pieces to operate. Right, so it's the farm. It's the farmland off of the farmland, basically. Yeah, it's the thing that can maximize heat and uh, the hay that they use and uh, allows for that rich species diversity that feeds all of the other components. All right. So we're going to go over some Japanese terms here. The farmlands or Satonora and the settlements, Satomura, are all considered different from the Satayama itself. Generally, the Satayama landscape includes the lands, the settlements, the reservoirs, and because these elements have been traditionally so strongly connected to one another through the agricultural land use system, the whole thing collectively is called Satayama landscape. Uh, mountains often don't just lead directly downhill, but oftentimes have peaks and valleys in which extensive flatlands and other smaller hills erupt, allowing for a complex, unique landscape for ecology and agriculture to thrive. Yeah, we've always talked about this idea of uh, utilizing the edge space, and because the landscape is so diverse, there's a ton of this edge that exists where you can maximize that diversity. You know, if you're a hunter, 
the place you want to hunt is on the edge of the forest, not in the middle, because the edge is where there's the most fruit access, because that's where the bushes can get the most sun, and they can get those nice plump berries that the animals are going to come to. That's the area where all that transitional space exists, and there's more diversity on the edge than anywhere else. And they've created an environment that's almost exclusively edges. Did I throw you off? No, it's just a good point. This mosaic of sustainably maintained environments is a result of generations of people managing nature to support their livelihood as well as supporting the landscape itself. These mosaics can support species that require multiple habitats for survival, enabling species diversity by providing these various habitats, which leads to a high diversity of species in the Satayama landscape, all of which is dependent on the natural conditions that have existed in these regions. They've created a way to live in this diverse region without adding or really taking away from the diversity. It doesn't seem like they've taken too much away. It seems like they've made a few changes, but they haven't really like, you know, clear cut forest or flattened out like or widened valleys or anything like that. Yeah, they didn't do any major like damage to the landscape in terms of movement or like actually moving or disruption or disruption. Right. Uh, however, what they did do is that they created these very unique conditions and they did it in a patchwork sense because they're working with the mountains, which a mountain is inherently patchwork in terms of you know where it goes up and down and the, the scale of the slope and things like that. They met those different changes on the mountain with different landscapes and how they treated those landscapes, which meant that they were able to create these unique conditions where species that, and we'll talk about this in a, a moment, species learned to live in unique ways so like there's a specific type of bird that is only found in the Sadiyama landscape that relies on the coppicing trees as well as the rice paddies that they only eat specific things that live in the rice paddies that only live in the rice paddies mm -hmm. so they've created not only through like just the say the rice paddies where there might be a species that only exists in that rice paddy right they're having this cross-pollination between these unique conditions in that environment where species are specializing to meet those uh, environmental conditions and essentially becoming more efficient, you know, making the, the landscape better as a whole, you know, making it more complex. Archaeologists have dedicated a lot of research into learning the day-to-day -day lives of these indigenous lifestyles in order to learn more about the sustainability and the utilization of the environment in this time. Their houses at the foot of the mountains were no different than most farm regions, with thatched roof grasses and local wood as the primary timber. The small settlements in the mountainous lands that were primarily forests had a density of around 138 people per square mile, while the flatlands where there was mostly the, the more intensive agriculture, the traditional agriculture that we think of in terms of gardens and things like that, the, the grazing space for their animals, and the larger rice paddies, those areas were closer to about a thousand people per square mile, which for context, Atlanta has about a population density of about 3,100 people per square mile. So like they, they had like that, that's a lot of people, a thousand people per square mile. Mm -hmm. That's comparable to maybe not Atlanta, but like a suburb where they were able to have people live on that type of landscape and also be completely sustainable on that landscape, uh, which is really uh, inspiring in a lot of ways in terms of what this podcast is about. Mm -hmm. For context, again, uh, considering the resources available, this is significantly more dense than what we would traditionally imagine an agrarian society to look like and points to the fact that there are different ways of doing this, that it doesn't have to be these small clusters like what we saw in Norway. It matters, again, about aligning people's interests and goals with the landscape with, with the population increases and where these systems may have fallen short do you think that was because they were so successful it allowed for a population boom that couldn't quite like they couldn't update their system in order um, to keep up with it i don't know if there was a population boom i'm there there seems to be a couple of conflicting reasons why these uh communities kind of collapsed at various points in history um, they all generally come back to this idea of uh, deforestation. What caused that deforestation is kind of up for debate. And um, there's there's some thoughts, and not all of them really have to do with the communities themselves, mm -hmm. but outside influence, mm -hmm. uh, which shouldn't be 
too much of a surprise right um that more of the the areas that are more concerned with gaining power and amassing that power were a large reason why these fell but that doesn't mean that there weren't other conditions that fed into it like many things i'm sure it was more than one thing alone Mm -hmm. so i I don't really have an answer but i definitely think i wish i did (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm sure you've tried to look for it, but yeah, and it um, doesn't seem like. I mean, at the end of the day, like the landscape does have a carrying capacity. Mm-hmm. We like to pretend that we can just keep growing indefinitely in population because the alternative is not good, and also generally falls along these very racist lines of who has power and who doesn't, who stays and who goes. Yeah, I'll decide. I'll do it. I'm fine with that. <laughs> um, but like. That is obviously a problem, and I I don't think the planet is at carrying capacity now if we manage the land correctly. So I don't think it's really a conversation we need to have at this point. Um, But it's it's definitely, you know, there. I think we get so infatuated on the left with this idea of, like, pure theory that we can't acknowledge, like, there there are limits. Mm -hmm. We're not there yet, but there are limits. We have to stop pretending there isn't. So anyways, that's whole other point got them all fired up yeah in many areas that have had successfully managed the sustainable use of the land's resources the use of sadiyama landscapes as common land has always been established generally it was recognized at the moment when agriculture took its most prominent role in japan and during that time local autonomy allowed the use of land as commons This came with trials and errors, obviously, but ultimately led to an intensive type of management which ensured sustainable resource management. Much like the Norwegian farming communities, these communities relied on consensus and direct democracy for landscape management, and the towns along the mountainside relied on one another to ensure the complete landscape was maintained appropriately, creating a unique patchwork of small communities working together to maintain an extremely diverse landscape. The sustainability of this collection of system further relied on specific species which provided multiple uses for the people. One of the plants that really stood out in my research from the others was the Japanese silver grass, which is a clumping thick grass that grows up to seven feet tall. This is something you probably have seen at like a bunch of like pools because it looks like beach grass with like the giant ferns on the top. The grass was used as a fuel for roof thatching and for feeding of livestock. It was able to grow alongside the flat paddy fields and was able to grow successfully underneath the coppiced landscape and was a key component of the feed their livestock ate. Like Elliot said, the primary livestock of the landscape were horses and cattle, but like I said, many wild boar and deer covered the landscape and they thrived in these park-like coppiced forest lands. Another species that was a key component of the Satayama landscape was the Japanese red pine, Evidence points to the Japanese red pine becoming a key plant for firewood starting in around the 10th century, and by the 17th century it had mostly disappeared as a key species in the landscape, as it does not coppice well and was quickly replaced by laurels who took over the habitat and weren't primarily useful. And again, that points to one of those periods where we could see the evidence that human management kind of waned, and obviously there were some failures in the system that they had put together. Within the pine woodlands, a secondary, coppiceable understory species provided a lot of the supplemental heat and medicine as well, and that was the azalea. It is said that the mountain would all turn red in the summer as the flowers bloomed across the landscape. However, as these were wiped away, firewood demand outpaced the reproductive capacity of the landscape, and the laurels which replaced the Japanese red pines outcompeted the azaleas. But it speaks to the fact that they tried these different systems and it it took them some time to learn what was sustainable. And I'm personally of the opinion that most communities only learn by failure. Uh, you don't know what the, the limit is until you cross that limit. And I feel like this was that experience for um, the farmers in this region. So the rice terraces, the iconic image of pastoral Japan um, are estimated to be around 2,500 years old. And these terraces usually sit at the bottom portion of slopes of these mountains where they are accessible for the required maintenance, but still a part of the mountain mountains where they are able to harvest the water running beneath the soil. Whether or not it was planned, if you were to look at where in the mountainside the paddies began, it typically is around the key point Andy had discussed in the key line design, 
uh, episode, which we did earlier, and it would explain how they were able to so effectively collect water into the paddy terraces. Paddy fields began around this same time, and evidence exists of paddies being destroyed and then built one upon another. What's the difference between a paddy field and a uh, paddy terrace? Terrace paddies would be one like steps like one two you know what i mean so like going down so they were smaller and then like on the hill right and then the field flat patty i'm guessing would be wider longer and more area so at this time evidence points to flooding bringing volcanic ash soil which holds nutrients well down into the patty region and mixing this ash with organic matter creates the ideal conditions for permanent rice cultivation The volcanic activity paired with the erosion of mountainous landscapes and the sediment drop at the base of rivers together create the ideal conditions for permanent rice paddies and extremely fertile soils. So this is like the delta accumulation of nutrients that I uh, so they kind of create like mini deltas almost right um, around the key lines. The key lines, yeah. Flatlands and the small shallow valleys on the downslopes of mountains, known as yatsu were often flooded for retention ponds and rice paddies as the swales were flooded and drained during rice production. And bamboo, uh, which was utilized for dozens of things, crowded the edges of the ponds and grows in thick clumps along the water edges. These areas could be used for paddies or simply for water storage, but again, these spaces look remarkably similar to the key line systems that we had discussed in the previous episode. Often, the settlements surrounded these areas in particular, and they dotted the entire mountain, mountainous landscape because of the fact such a large portion of the caloric intake of the communities came from these managed wetlands. These regions have proven to host a seemingly endless supply of rare insects and dragonflies that rely on the repeated flooding and drainage of the landscape, and without human intervention, the species had extensive declines in population. So I do want to talk about something that kind of ties into this idea of uh, these rare insects and something that really became evident in my research on the Sadayama landscape. There was an influx in mutualist relationships, which was documented regarding the relationship between various animals and plants, specifically the native bumblebees and a whole host of flowers, which time their blooms to be successive, specifically for the bumblebees to maximize their utility in pollinating. The bumblebees' flowers exist primarily within the Sadayama landscape edges, which we talked about being pretty much everywhere because of this landscape, which were maximized through that repeated coppicing of the trees, constantly opening up new areas to the flowers. The mutualistic relationship reflects the environment's march toward better efficiency, and in some ways we could consider it an indicator that the landscape is becoming more resilient by the involvement of human intervention. Bumblebees are not the only species to have this type of unique mutualistic relationship, but the one I wanted to highlight as the correlation with the specific impacts on the environment from human intervention highlights the explicit ability of humanity to improve the landscape for the ecology. Hell yeah. Further, many of these species specifically require the unique conditions of the terrace patties to survive. For example, There are at least eight species of frogs which can only be found in the Yatsuda, the landscape where these specific terrace paddies exist. The management of these traditional rice paddies, compared to many of the modern paddies, is that the Yatsudas contain water year-round and are fed from underground spring water, as we had explained earlier through the water management system, meaning the water is generally warmer than the melting ice on the mountaintops that flows into the rivers. Further, as to be expected, these terraced paddies are much smaller than modern paddies in the paddies on the lowland plains, creating a microclimate which has evolved to create specific species for those unique conditions. The small microclimates were paired near one another in the terraced structure, allowing for the frogs to go from paddy to paddy with limited effort, and these species don't have the capacity to travel long distances meaning as these landscapes disappear, they no longer can survive. Abandoned small-scale farming of plains and valleys together with afforestation and urban expansion has led to a serious deterioration during the last 60 years. This abandonment stems from access to cheap fertilizers, scaling to compete in global marketplaces, and aging populations while younger people moved towards the cities. 
Another factor in the loss of the Satayama landscape is the breakdown of the functional relationships among the elements of the land use mosaic. The Satayama landscape once provided a system for the cyclical use of bioresources. Villages and cities used the firewood and charcoal from the coppices. Compost as waste from the villages and cities was applied to the fields and the paddies, and vegetation provided fodder for livestock. In view of the circulation of bioresources described here, the Satayama landscape thus serves as a model not only for the nature harmonious society, but for a resource circulating society as well. Today, however, this process of circulation too has collapsed with the advent of an economic system that seeks to improve productivity through greater efficiency in the form of monocultural land use, and hence threatens to eliminate the small acreage land use pattern of the Satayama landscape. Abandonment of this land use during the last half century has led to forest successions and afforestation, followed by decreased diversity. Some species of plants and animals are threatened today, and one study within the Tokyo metropolitan area found, based on a map sequence from the period of around 1880 to 2001, clearly shows that the mosaic Satayama landscape existed with dominant woodlands up until around 1961, but was then almost totally replaced by urban land use. Over the last 30 years, there has been a growing concern about the deterioration of the Satayama landscape due to firstly, destruction by human activities such as urban development, and secondly, under-management by an aging and decreasing population in the local communities of the Satayama landscape areas. People in Japan have a strong interest in restoration of the Satayama landscape because of its nature as well as its cultural values. Scientists as well as common people have rediscovered the social and economic importance of Satayama landscapes in Japanese history. There is a growing interest in preserving and managing Satayama landscapes as nature reserves and recreational areas, particularly close to cities and villages. Citizens have organized associations for voluntary woodland restoration by clearing and coppicing woods, making joint excursions, and other activities. And people are also invited to rent small field lots for cultivating rice and vegetables in the traditional indigenous ways. Uh, some nature areas have designed walk paths with instructive posters for school children and other interested parties, and so they still do use them as parks and public spaces, as well as a way to stay in touch with their cultural heritage. A national movement named Mura Okashi, or Village Reactivation, is growing with the aim to in integrate rural areas with cities. In Japan, much attention has been drawn to the traditional Satayama rural landscape because of its destruction and deterioration due to social changes since the end of World War II. Over the past two decades, however, there has been an assessment of the current state of knowledge and a critical evaluation of information on the interaction between humans and the Satayama and Satoumi landscapes in Japan. More than 200 authors, stakeholders, and reviewers from Japan and abroad have been involved and it aims to provide scientifically credible and policy-relevant information on the significance of ecosystems services provided by Satayama and Satoumi landscapes and their contribution to economic and human development for the use of policymakers. The Satayama and Satoumi landscapes are considered dynamic mosaics of managed socio-ecological systems producing a bundle of ecosystem services for the human well-being. The study also identified plausible alternative futures of those landscapes in the year 2050, taking into account various drivers such as governmental and economic policies, climate change, technology, and socio-behavioral responses. I feel like Pete Buttigieg would get like wet listening to how we're going to utilize this landscape through this like very MBA-esque like plan that's going to take place like in some unidentified date in the future you just put an image in my head that i'm going to have to drink heavily to black out and forget good the researchers realize there's a need for humanity to be a part of the landscape but they don't really see how our economic system really makes that possible we know that humans need to be a part of it but we want to do it on a topical level we don't want to have that actual relationship we just want to go through the motions or at least that's what these particular people that are trying to push this project forward it's a utilization of bureaucracy and like 
general funds from the government, as well as well-meaning but underskilled volunteers, which is really a mixture for a long-term disaster. There's really no stakeholders that can drive the necessary change and have that authentic relationship with the environment. And not only that, but this takes the ownership of this project out of the community. It's no longer the community themselves, but this like mix of white collar professionals and citizens that have the time to volunteer in these types of like feel good projects. It's almost like you've localized the voluntourism that we've talked about in the past, which is problematic in the way our sense of place within nature is becoming the exclusive playground of the upper and upper middle classes. Uh, it, this is primarily designed for non-working class people, despite the fact that the working class people were the ones doing this type of work up until 60 years ago. Right. So it kind of reminds me of a conversation we had a few years back about simulacra and simulation, where I guess in this situation, the older ways that we're trying to rediscover and bring back would be the true way that we're trying to live. And it seems like the way that they're trying to package it and rebrand it as like the cool thing to do. It's like craft beer. Yeah, it's sort of like a a representation of the right way to live, but it's sort of bastardized and a step down our... It's an aesthetic. It it tries to be a 2.0, but it's really just a cheap copy. Yeah, it's an aesthetic of connection with the landscape. You know, you go and do your one hour a week or whatever it might be. And then you go home to your life and suddenly you're in touch with nature. It's not really solving any of these connection problems with humanity in our landscape. It's just giving that topical facelift, like doing the bare minimum at the most uh, appropriate cost per plant or whatever methodology they're using. And it's still keeping the vast majority of working class people from really utilizing the landscape and developing a genuine connection with it. Right. It's a cheap substitute for the real thing. Yeah. And even outside of that, we can look at the landscape itself and why this won't really work, I don't think, in the long term. You know, for example, let's look at the the Yatsudas, those terraced patties. While a lot of these researchers have identified these sites as having extreme ecological value, their solutions are still framed from a modern context. While part of the reason these sites have deteriorated is from abandonment, Another component is the role of urban spaces and how the water flows throughout the landscape. We had talked about how there was so much work put into making sure the landscape carried the water throughout it, but dropping these cities into these areas and then having them tie into those aquifers underground, they, they've completely disrupted the water systems in the landscape. Mm-hmm. This has mostly left the Yatsudas dry. Further, before the unique value of these sites was really recognized, Farmers had tried to improve these conditions through increasing the drainage and building newer dikes, often utilizing modern technology that didn't really have a place in this. And they weren't thinking about just making the technology more resilient and last longer. It was about making it designed for modern agriculture. So that often meant making the terraces bigger. It often meant making it so that big equipment could come in and out of the landscape to manage those rice paddies and things like that. Things as simple as where the water was coming from uh, when they started doing these types of systems. They were bringing in water from various pipes and that water temperature and the biology of that water is totally different than the natural environment that it had come from. So while this was improvement, it wasn't really uh, a return to what it used to be. And uh, it almost feels like a cheapened, the, the best cost benefit analysis of how can we get the most diversity for the cheapest buck as opposed to actually bringing back this lifestyle or landscape or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, pipe it in from somewhere else, man. Yeah. Telling me they brought in pipelines. Yeah, they brought in irrigation to bring in the water to these sites. So while this worked, they did a lot of research to see what the benefit was. Again, big surprise. And like, that's fine. Like, I don't have a problem with doing research. But what they did find was that the landscapes that were still fed with natural spring water still provided the best landscape for these frog species, despite the size of the patties. So even the patties that had been made bigger, if they had that natural spring water, they actually still had more diversity per square, whatever they used, Mm -hmm. and a higher percentage of these frogs that don't exist anywhere else. The challenges in restoring this landscape really point to the fact that these solutions can't come from the goal of trying to just make them what they were in terms of like, recreating it with modern tools and technology, but creating a real relationship with the landscape, 
which is not really the point of this. It's about, you know, appreciating landscape, but not being a part of it, not making it a part of your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Japan's Satayama landscape has evolved and points to the fact that it's a continuous evolution of our relationship with the landscape, which will guide us to a better efficiency with the landscape. And that what might have been once a healthy, sustainable, human-centered ecology may not be in the modern era. While it is important to know that like those landscapes were probably better than what we're lazily recreating, the environment is different with climate change and all these other things that we can't just simply try to flip a switch either and just go back to how it was either. That's not a solution that we can really try to imagine. In this process, we do need to learn and we will fail. But the main point, I think, for me is that we have to meaningfully try to do it and not just do it in terms of having some analysts come in and say this is how to do it to be you know, cost effective. That's not going to solve this problem. And I also wonder if, you know, I always hear the saying history repeats itself. And I also wonder we are going to learn, but is it relearning? Because it seems like, you know. There have been civilizations that have understood how these things work and understood what works, and they may have tried to make changes because, again, outside forces and who knows what happened, but they tried to change them for the better, and whether they failed or succeeded, it gave them the information to continue and move on. And now I feel like we're literally rediscovering the same things that they figured out. It took them millennia. We're going to have to rediscover it because we've either veered off path or just made changes that weren't thought of with with great foresight. Yeah. And, you know, I'll use a metaphor that I guess kind of sticks in my back of my head because it annoys me. Like cultures evolve and like the Satoyama landscapes are a really great example of that because we see it evolve, fail, evolve to be more efficient, fail less, evolve again. And then like it came down when um, industrial farming took over but it had nothing to do with what they were doing Mm -hmm. so they kind of tightened and improved their systems over time but what can happen like what we're experiencing now is when you've cut it off you're no longer letting it evolve we don't have an old system to evolve from right so like for example a lot of cultures that come to the united states those cultures die when they come here and the reason why they don't get passed on for many generations They don't evolve with the culture. So that's why like New Jersey Italian has nothing, no relationship to Italian people because their culture is like a weird mix of Americanism in 1950s Italy, whereas that has no relationship with modern Italian culture that's evolved collectively. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges in what you might call post-colonialism is that where do you go from here? You can't go back to what it used to be but also you can't stay where you are. Yeah, I mean, people are, well, my answer to that is we're a fucking melting pot, so melt motherfuckers. Everybody smash your cultures and shit together and see what we get. It'll be a mixed bag. And I mean, that's fine with culture, but in terms of like, we can't mesh our agricultural food system with this ancient farming system. There's really no middle ground. No. They tried it, and that's what we're dealing with the mess of now. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so it it's a complicated conversation, and I think understanding this very complicated history highlights some differences and nuances about being in touch with the landscape in a way that we didn't really see with the Norwegians. And I think part of that is because of the unique conditions that existed there, primarily the density and the landscape differences, primarily in that rainfall and the temperature, which I think speaks to the fact that a lot of these systems are pretty similar but they meet the conditions of their environment. Yeah, they did a pretty cool job of working with those tightly packed, um, spiny, peaky mountains. They're not like rolling hills or anything like yeah. that. They're pretty pretty intense mountains. And they, they worked that into the way that they needed to live and stay in one place, going from being nomads to making homes in those mountains. Yeah. It's, it's impressive. Um, So hopefully you found this episode interesting and insightful, and we only really scratched the surface on this subject area. I wouldn't call the modern projects a success or a failure, but um, I do think it speaks to the inability of our technocratic government-driven projects to solve these problems we have created for ourselves. I think we do need holistic, people-driven ecology-focused solutions, and not solutions that are based in an ambiguous end goal of, say, preserving rare species, but an end goal of renewing our relationship with the landscape, and not just doing these things because it's what our ancestors did, but doing them because it's what we need to do in order to be human. 
If you did enjoy this episode, please head on over to the Apple Podcast and give us a review. Those reviews are instrumental in our growth, and we have some really great interviews coming up in the future because of the positive feedback we have gotten. So we hope uh, with even more reviews, we will continue to extend our reach, rank higher in searches, and continue to get even better guests. Um, with all of this in mind, we thank you for taking the time to listen. And the next episode, we will be discussing the indigenous farming practices of India and how that compares to both Norwegian and Japanese systems. Until then, this is Andy. This is Elliot. With the Poor Pearls Almanac. Rewire, thrive, motherfuckers. Thrive.